Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. On today's episode of Mike's Search for Meaning, my guest is Marissa Fernandez. Marissa is an executive coach, performance strategist, speaker, advisor, and consultant. Marissa brings into her practice a wealth of experience from her successful 15-year corporate career. She previously held senior marketing roles on iconic brands like the NFL, Gillette, and Tide, managed multi-million dollar budgets, developed and led high-performing, diverse cross-functional teams, and ultimately climbed up the ranks to chief marketing officer. And in this conversation, we explore a little bit about her journey as she ascended the ranks into chief marketing officer. And she got laid off right around the time the pandemic began and really re-examined what did she want to do with her life and only recently became a coach And so there's so many things that I'm impressed with Marissa about. One of them is how quickly she has built her book of business as a coach. And in some ways it makes sense because she's been doing it all along and she picked up skills along the way in her career. But she speaks about how she was always a perfectionist and really risk averse. And those were qualities that she wore as a badge of honor. And there's been lots of unlearning around, well, is that really a great thing all the time? And how can I show up differently and stretch myself and really reach for the stars and and shoot higher than I have most of my life? And one of the many gifts of coaching is that we, uh, we get to challenge our beliefs and our worldview. And so as a client, Marissa has really expanded. And now as a coach, she helps folks make that same level of expansion. We talk about how a lot of times we think that one day when we have the confidence, then we will take the action that we've been hiding from for a long time. And she helps folks flip the script on that. And we talk about different tools that she equips her clients with that help them visualize the person that they want to be and invoke that into the current moment. Marissa shares my love for reading, so there's all sorts of great recommendations. She has really helpful daily practices that I think will be of use for you. And she speaks to uh, all sorts of different leadership qualities that I think will help you step into your own personal power. So with all of that said, let's settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy what Marissa has for us. Marissa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to have you on. I've really been looking forward to the conversation. And I told you beforehand that I have some questions I like to bring into every conversation. I'm really interested to hear your answer from multiple perspectives. And I I love what this question illuminates in people. So The first question I ask every single one of my guests is, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? Great question and very unique. I've never heard this one before. I 
grew up on Long Island in New York, and I have an identical twin sister and a younger brother. Grew up with both of our parents. And all three of us were very active kids involved in all kinds of activities. And so when we were growing up, we weren't all five of us always together because sometimes we were running from place to place. But when we were all together, I'd say it was loud, full of energy, a lot of laughter. It still is when all of us get together. And now the family has grown with spouses and kids. But it was, yeah, high energy and a lot of discussion around our days, what we're up to, what we have coming up, managing what became a complex family calendar. That's a little bit of the sense of what you get in the Fernandez household. Uh-huh. And w- what did your parents do for work? Like, I-, I find that to be a good indicator. I know that you began your career in marketing and eventually made it to be a marketing executive. But in what way was that informed by what your parents did and or like how they encouraged you to express yourself on a professional level? My dad was an auditor for the government. Uh, He has since retired. And my mom was a nurse. First, she worked as a registered nurse in a hospital and she pivoted to be more specifically a fertility nurse later in her career. Interestingly, they both like started in a career after college and retired from that exact same career, which for their generation is not very unique. Obviously Mm -hmm. for ours, it is. Of course, when I was a kid, I didn't appreciate what it meant to be a working parent and in a household where both parents are working and raising three really busy kids. I've come to appreciate that much more as an adult, but I do think it was helpful for me to see them both working, particularly, you know, seeing my mom working and having that be evidence of what it's like to both have a family and to be a professional and not so much related to their career. But I think that like most parents, they were committed to creating a better life for us than even they had themselves. And part of that was instilling in all three of us at a young age, the importance of education, the importance of studying, um, it would be common for my mom, for example, to be quizzing us on our spelling bee words the day before mm-hmm. a spelling test. And because that was ingrained in us, the importance of studying, getting good grades, we all um, thrived academically. And I think that set me and my siblings up for success later in life in many ways. Uh-huh. And was it as you, I mean, I'm fast forwarding very quickly through because I want to get to what you do currently. I want to mostly yes. explore coaching, but I, I love understanding what got you to coaching. So mm-hmm. as you went to college, were you, was it like, I'm going to be a marketing major and uh, that's the path I went down? Like, what, where did that exploration as a kid take you to as you began to really try on different outfits or, or uh, hats to wear as a professional? Sure. So It wasn't that clear at the time. I think what was clear for me growing up and in high school was that going to a good school was important. Mm -hmm. Um, That was ingrained in me. I now have more of an open mind, frankly, with like what going to a good school means and that it's a great path, but not the only path. But at the time I did sort of feel like it was the only path. And so I studied a lot, I got good grades, I did extracurriculars to kind of build my resume to get into a good school went to Cornell, had a fabulous experience. I went in thinking that maybe I wanted to do journalism. I liked to write, I still do, but I wasn't quite sure, to be honest. 
Um, and so I had sort of a, a broad education. I did study communication and get a degree in communication, but it wasn't until later in my college career when I was a junior that I took a brand management course in the hotel school at Cornell. And I loved not just learning about marketing, but learning about the business of brand building and the business of deeply understanding a consumer and sort of the psychology of it, and then being able to deliver products, services, and messaging that resonates with an audience. So that kind of piqued my interest in marketing. I took a few more courses in that lane. And when Procter & Gamble came to recruit at Cornell, which is one of the top brand management companies in the world, I thought, um, let me give this a try. I'll do it for two years and then move back to New York. The job was in Cincinnati and ended up staying there for six years and learning a whole lot more. And that's what got me on the marketing career path. And very quickly, because I, I don't want to spend too much time here, but how long did you stay in, in marketing as a career? 15 years. 15 years. <laughs> so a while. And I enjoyed it. I never had a moment of feeling like, wow, I really got it wrong. I'm really a square peg in a round hole. There was a lot about it that I liked. But I will say that when I started my career at PNG at 22, I decided that success in my career meant becoming a chief marketing officer because I only really knew how to think about my own progress linearly. So I was thinking just like a kindergartner goes to first grade and second grade and third grade, I'm an assistant brand manager. So I'm going to march right on up the ladder to, to chief marketing officer. And I never took the time then or even later in my career to deeply understand, is that even what I want? What feels fulfilling about that beyond the external recognition and the money that you get from having a title like that? I didn't quite do the work. And when I got there 15 years later to, to chief marketing officer position, I had kind of a rude awakening that was like, oh, I climbed up all this way and I'm not wild about the view. What have I been doing? <laughs> yeah, I wanted to like I I was thinking the next level I'd want to explore was I know that you were laid off and that that forced you to take a look. But in hindsight, it it sounds like there was a realization, like if you were if you're to look back now with your mm -hmm. current wisdom and current knowledge on those 15 years as you ascended the ladder, were, were there any times that there was like a signal that popped up that maybe you ignored or because I, I'm understanding you definitely enjoyed it. And it wasn't like you, you said you're not the square peg in a round hole and it, it wasn't necessarily a bad fit, but like, were there indicators that this wasn't really something you, you wanted intrinsically? Mm -hmm. Two things come to mind. One is there weren't moments that I was feeling like this isn't what I want, but there were moments where I felt a lot more fulfilled, like, oh, there's something more. And those, which I didn't notice until after the facts, this is all hindsight is 2020, but there are moments in my career that I reflect on when I felt totally on fire, engaged, impactful, that much more closely resembled coaching than marketing, where I really, really felt deeply fulfilled. Like I'll give an example. I volunteered to create a team building offsite for my team when I was working in the Boston office. And I had recently read this book called The Happiness Advantage by Sean Aker, which is all about how happy people produce better results, but we're sort of biased to think, well, let me get the result and then I'll become happy. Mm. And he and loved the book. And so I designed a half day 
offsite with my team to practice the tips and tools and teach them the philosophy. And I loved it. And other people would think, may think, oh my gosh, I don't have time on top of my day job to like do an offsite. And I can't believe that my bosses make me do this. And meanwhile, I was like, this is so fun and fulfilling. And at the time I didn't think maybe I could build a career out of this. I just sort of was like, oh, that was a cool part of my job. Similarly, in smaller moments, I felt so engaged and in flow and impactful when I got to coach the people on my team, when I like had someone across the table from me who was having a challenge or who wasn't feeling confident or who didn't know how to navigate a situation with one of their direct reports or so. And being able to coach and, and enable and inspire them was something that I was really good at. So I had those moments and it wasn't until I got all the way to the top of the ladder of chief marketing officer before my role was eliminated and I got let go that I realized some of the work I enjoyed and fulfilled and felt fulfilled, but a lot of it I didn't care for. And I wasn't that great at, which caused me to question myself and not feel confident and not want to do it. Um, so I did have some indicators before doomsday happened. And I say that um, <laughs> lovingly because now I appreciate it so much. Uh huh. And, and so doomsday happens, you, you get laid off and you're, I'm sure, confronted with these big questions of well, what the hell do I do with my life now? Like what's, what's next for me? And I mean, one of the possible answers would have been, and I'm, I'm a successful, yeah, I was the chief marketing officer at this company. I could get another marketing job. And that clearly wasn't what happened. So it seems like the, the layoff, it forced you to take a look at something and you realize, well, something's going to change and I don't care how scary it is. So could you, could you give more color to what happened after you got laid off? Yes, I can. And I actually did take another chief marketing ah. officer job briefly, um, more out of fear, I think, than of true desire, though I didn't know it at the time. So when my job got eliminated, it was March of 2020. Yes, I was wrestling with all of these questions and I was also wrestling with all of these feelings. Most of them were negative, like feeling like a failure, feeling like I don't even know what my identity is without being a successful career person. Like so much of my self-worth had been wrapped up in that um, for 15 years and I was stressed and it was the beginning of the pandemic and might it be hard for a job. So I had all these negative emotions, but I also felt a sense of relief. And that was like curious to me because here I am like without a job and it's the pandemic and I had just gotten let go. I had never gotten let go before, never even had a negative performance review. So it was radical, mm. but I was feeling relief and I got curious about that emotion. And that's what started indicating like, okay, something about that wasn't right. And now let me try to pursue what is. I hired a coach. I read a few books that were helpful in illuminating like those moments, those coaching moments in my career. That's what inspired me to get a coach certification. Like, let me explore this. But at the time, because it felt so drastic to become a coach, which is what I ultimately ended up doing, spoiler alert, if the audience <laughs> doesn't get no, that felt so extreme, so drastic, so frankly out of reach that I only allowed myself to think, okay, what if I go into a company that appreciates coaching in their leaders, maybe that would feel good. Or what if I went and did marketing at a coaching company? That's actually what I ended up doing for a short time. 
I did a three-month contract at a coaching company and I ran their marketing department. And meanwhile, on the side, because I was working on my certification, I was coaching clients. And that was a helpful lily pad for me to leap to because I had my night job of coaching and my day job of chief marketing officer. And I got to compare how I felt and how impactful I was. And it became so obvious that the marketing work I liked, I was good at it. It wasn't horrible. I wasn't dreading it. It was fine. Some of it I liked, some of it I didn't, some of it I tolerated. And then the coaching work, I was like on fire. My clients were doing great. I felt so creative. I felt so energized. I couldn't wait for like those hours of the day. That was like a really good experiment, right? If I'm a scientist in a lab, I was like, okay, I'm on to something. And so when my three-month contract expired and we started discussion, or as it was coming to expire, they were drafting up the paperwork to make me a full-time offer. I just thought to myself, what am I doing? Like Mm -hmm. my instincts, my gut is screaming at what the right decision is right now in this moment. If not now, when? And what's the worst that can happen if I do it? And after three months, six months, I hate it, or I'm not getting clients, or my clients aren't achieving results, or I'm not making enough money that I feel like I can sustain myself. I can get another marketing job. I'm not going to forget how to be a marketer. That option is available to me. So why not give it a try? Mm -hmm. And at that point, I made a decision that I didn't look back from. Awesome. Well, I don't want to gloss over there. There were a couple of moments in your answer where I was impressed by your emotional awareness and your emotional intelligence. And I I would love to quickly explore that. So there was, there was one point that you said you felt a sense of relief and I would be, I'll, I'll name a couple of things and then you can take it from there of like, how did you know the the ultimate question is how did you know you were feeling these things? a lot of us are so detached from our feelings. We don't know that we're experiencing them. You said that you were getting really lit up when you were coaching your clients and it was exciting for you. And then your marketing work was whatever. At best, it was you're you're doing it to get by. And then a third thing was when you were presented with that offer, you were able to check in with your gut and your gut was telling you, I'm going to go for this. So was that is that something that's intuitive to you? Like it just Mm -hmm. always has been there or is that a skill, emotional awareness and emotional intelligence? Is that a skill that you developed over time? Mm -hmm. Great question. Emotional intelligence, which as you know, is a broad skill, right? Like there's different components to it. And I've, and I would consider myself someone who's always been pretty emotionally aware in terms of managing my own emotional experience, being empathetic, understanding other people's emotional experience and helping to navigate that dynamic, both in work and personal life. The new element for me, very new, is hearing and listening and trusting my gut. And I find this with a lot of my high achieving clients. Maybe you can relate to this. I'm guessing some people in your audience can too. I relied instead of my internal like gut telling me what's right and what's wrong I sort of learned to default to external praise criticism promotions raises these like external signals told me if I was doing a good job Mm -hmm. so if I got a good performance review if I got promoted quickly which like I didn't progress in my career relatively quickly 
that's the information that I use to know that I was doing things quote unquote right and like doing a good job and being successful. My gut probably was like silenced over the years. Like it was, it was a mere whisper. I didn't really learn. And it wasn't until, you know, the experience of being the CMO and and wrestling with like, I don't, I don't know if this is for me, but what does that mean about me? And, And questioning it when I got let go and it happened to be during the pandemic. So I had a lot more time to myself. I couldn't distract myself with a social life and with work. Like I really was forced to be with my own emotions, to be with my own thoughts, which helped me, honestly. Like I'm glad that the timing for me worked out the way that it did. And so when it was coming up on my decision to sign the CMO deal or go off on my own, my gut wasn't like, oh, maybe, (laughs) maybe it was like, do it. (laughs) It was, it had gotten so loud. I feel like it was like a tiger that had gotten let out of a cage. It was a caged animal. And that was so informative for me that now with my clients and with myself, I try to make it a practice of like, how do I feel about this? Mm -hmm. I don't know about you again, high performers. I tend, I think myself included tend to go to, how do I think about this? Like what's the logical, what's my, I need pros and cons. I need to write down. And if I go too much into my head and what do I think, I have to remind myself, how do I feel about this? And usually there's a pretty good answer. Yeah. Have you ever heard the quote, the mind is a terrible master, but a wonderful servant? No. (laughs) It it evokes that for me. It's like the mind is such a powerful tool, but it's in our culture, in most Western societies, it's just, it's so heavily leaned on that we forget that below the neck, there's all sorts of other intelligence that we can pay attention to. And yeah, there's, there's so much wisdom from our gut. I would be curious before we move into your coaching practice, just what did that, what is uh, like, yes, you got to do this, Marissa. Like, what does that look like or feel like in your gut? Like, how did you know what that yes was for you? It felt exciting. It felt fulfilling. Like I had never experienced professional fulfillment to that level before. And I, and I had a great career. I worked on awesome projects. I worked with cool people. So I wasn't like comparing it to something crappy, but the fact that in my experience coaching, I felt so engaged. I felt I use the metaphor, like my pilot light was on. I coach clients. Sometimes I feel like their pilot light is out. It's like an internal flame that gets ignited when you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, when you're doing things that are very aligned with your strengths and your purpose. That's really how I felt. And my coach with me has used this expression that when you can take action, when your excitement is 1% greater than your fear. And I really like that because it acknowledges that like fear absolutely can and probably will be there, maybe even in a big way. And you don't have to wait until you're 10 times more excited and courageous than you are scared. It's like, if it's just 1% more, then you can take the bold action. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So, you know, now you're tuned into your gut, you know, you want to coach. <laughs> I've had that realization and then I've also had the, oh shit, like, how do I, how do I build a business from here? Like, that's not really something that I was particularly skilled at. I, I still 
frankly, it's like, it could be hard. So where, where did you go from that, that exciting realization? Like, what did, what did you do with that? Yeah. Great question. I networked a lot to meet other coaches. I have a great, robust network of people in my life. Always have. It's been a skill and a strength of mine, relationship building, keeping in touch with people, but I didn't know any coaches. So I didn't even really know what it meant to be a coach and to have a coaching practice. So it was helpful for me to have conversations with a bunch of people who were doing it and doing it well to learn, to learn how they started, to learn what to do, what not to do, what they charge, what they offer. And there's limitless ways to go, but it helped me to just sort of start to have some data points and orient myself to what it could look like. Definitely the most meaningful thing that I did was I hired a coach Mm -hmm. and I hired a coach who has a niche of working with new coaches who are getting their coaching business off the ground. Uh Couldn't be more specific to what I needed. We had an awesome exploratory conversation before we started working together And I had interviewed, you know, had consults with a few coaches and, you know, I told her she was getting my final rose. Like she was the best. (laughs) And I coughed up what felt like a really scary amount of money, considering I had virtually no income at the time, Um, you know, in, in the five figures for a few months of support or sorry, four figures for a few months of support. And that made me nervous but it also made me step up to the plate in a really big way because I was like, okay, several thousand dollars are going towards this. I'm gonna make the most of it. And I'm still working with her now. It's been over a year. We'll be working together at least till the end of this year because she's really, really helped me to um, fuel the business fire, so to speak. And before we get into what you do with your clients, I, I would love to hear, I think it's so important for coaches to be uh, investors in our own product, right? Like to, mm-hmm. if a coach doesn't have a coach, to me, that's actually a little bit of a red flag. And I've been working with my coach for about a year as well. And I, I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine it's, I'm like a different person from when I started mm-hmm. and this might be a tough question to answer because there's probably so many things that you've learned, but are there one or two things that stand out as your most profound aha moments or like biggest shifts or like something clicked that you had never seen before? Yes, totally. There there's been a bunch. The first one that comes to mind is that for my whole life before working, as long as I can remember before working with her, I considered myself risk averse. And I wore that like a badge of honor. I was like, I'm risk-averse. I'm not, I'm not taking risks. I'm going to be thoughtful, deliberate, not taking too many chances. Um, and what I learned in coaching is, in getting coached, is that that risk aversion in nine out of 10 cases was fear-driven. It was keeping me playing a smaller game that I'm capable of. It was like, keeping me in third gear instead of really reaching for fifth gear. It was like, I was just hitting a bunch of singles and doubles and I was never even trying to get a home run in any area of my life. And, you know, singles and doubles for those of us who are smart, capable, like it looks pretty good. You know, I had like success in my life. I don't think I was bombing out and striking out, but I really wasn't reaching for the stars. And so my full potential 
would, was never going to get realized unless I rearranged my thinking and rearranged my belief about myself that I can be bold and courageous, which now I very much identify with being bold and courageous, never have before getting coached. And secondly, reorienting my relationship to failure, which in school was like, avoid at all costs. You will, you will not fail. (laughs) And I sort of took that on in my career too, of like no failure, no mistakes. The bar is at 100%. And if that means that you set the bar to like where you absolutely know that without a doubt you can achieve it, that's what you do. But that leaves so much upside that you're never going to to get. So I had to shift this like embracing and feeling bold and courageous and taking bold action and learning like, yeah, I'm going to fail. I mean, if you're a small business owner and you know this, you have your coaching practice, you're going to get told no, you're going to have people ghost you. You're going to like some clients are going to go great and some are not. You're going to fumble some sales calls. I mean, all that stuff I've had to do. So I've quote unquote failed more in the last year than I have in my whole life. But I feel amazing and I've learned so much and my business is doing tremendous because of it. And I'm taking bold action in other areas of my life, which is like cool and fun and giving me great results. So that's by far been the biggest like headline takeaway from me getting coached. Uh-huh. And were, were there like specific questions that she asked that helped you arrive at that insight or like, was there something about her presence? Because it's, to me, it's one thing to know that, like I've, I've now heard it uh, so many times, right? Like you learn failures or it's not a failure, it's a lesson learned. And uh, like, we all make up stories about ourselves and they don't have to be true. And I think on a head level, a lot of people get that, but there's still mm-hmm. some way that we can make ourselves stuck. And, and maybe you're one of those people who it's just like, actually, I had never heard that before. And, uh, and you were able to just put on the, the bold hat really quickly, but was there something about like a question that she asked or a specific way that she got you to that insight? I'm sure there were plenty of questions, um, over time. And this wasn't like one session I felt one way and then I left feeling another way, but what, what sticks out to me is what she coached me to do was less about like thinking about it and answering a question and more about her pushing me into action Mm. that felt uncomfortable, that forced wins and failures to take place. So she had me, for example, like tracking how many outreaches I was doing, how many consults, how many exploratory sessions, how much money I was proposing in new business and holding my feet to the fire on, on growing those numbers. And so because that was an assignment, like I was putting myself out there in ways where if it was just me on an island and no one was holding me accountable, if I got a no or I got ghosted or somebody didn't reply, I probably would have like retreated and just not done as much. Similarly, if I share that I have an idea for a service or an offering, she's like on me, like, when are you going to try it? Who are you going to pitch it to? Who are three people who would benefit from it? let's hammer out like what you want to charge and you're pitching it like before our next session, let's go. She says it nicer than that, <laughs> but like she, she helped me. Sometimes I think we need to do it and be in action before we can think it and believe it and feel it. At least that's been true yeah. for me. So I find it's been in the action more than the inquiry that's helped shift 
my own self view and my just like philosophy on it now. Well, this is now, so thank you for taking me on the journey. And now we get to do the, <laughs> the exploration of your work. And that was one of the things that you, you teed it up nicely as a segue. One of the things that you invited into the conversation from the prep beforehand was you wanted to talk about just that, how confidence isn't something that we get and then take action, or a lot of us get it backwards. We, we think mm -hmm. we'll get the confidence. And then once we have that confidence, we will act. And I'd be curious to hear now, like, how do you bring that into your coaching practice? Like, that seems like one of the staples of, of what you do with people. You invite them into action, and then that builds the confidence. And what type of people are you mostly working with these days? Sure. So tell, I got the last question. Can you say the first question one more time? We ignore the first one for now. I, okay. I, but I do, I want to revisit how you help folks come to that realization and then take action and like explore the idea of how confidence isn't something that we get. It's something that is built from the taking action. Mm. Yes. On that, on that question, I'll share two things that I've found to be helpful. One is just illuminating a different example that helps people see almost how silly it is that we think and believe that we can have confidence doing something that we've never done before. It's uh -huh. like, if I told you to like, here's a flute, play it <laughs> and like uh, feel confident doing it. There's no mindset hack that's going to like make you feel confident because I'm guessing that you haven't done it. But if you took lessons and built up that skill, then the confidence would come over time. And so when people say, oh, I want to feel confident presenting to the board, it's like, well, if you've never done it before, thinking you're going to feel confident at the first go is setting yourself up to, to fail to a degree. So I find sometimes using like a more digestible, almost silly analogy helps people reframe or at least consider the idea that confidence isn't what they need to start. Um, the other thing is... <laughs> I call forth their future self. I, I invite them to imagine who they will be in the future state when they have had more experience and they do feel more confident. And I slow it down and I ask them to imagine how they will feel when they are that version of themselves. Imagine what beliefs they will have about themselves and about others. Imagine the actions that they take, the habits that have been created. And from that place, when they're able to sort of separate from this current version of themselves that doesn't feel like they can and put themselves into the future and then say, okay, what is that person doing, feeling, believing? And what of that can you just try to start thinking or believing or feeling or taking action on now to start emulating that future self and pulling it closer to the present. And I've found that exercise to be helpful as well. I see you smiling. So you might use a similar tool. Is that true? For sure. It, it's, it seems like it's a, a more powerful way to get to the heart of, uh, I think every coach in their toolbox has something to the effect of like, if I waved a magic wand and you could wish for any outcome, what would you wish for our time working together or this session? Or if you knew you couldn't possibly fail, what would you do? And that can get 
that can be helpful. But what you're inviting <laughs> there is visualization is like the brain actually can differentiate between if it actually happened or if it if it is imagining that it happened, it still is, it feels like it's actually being experienced. And when, when someone's able to tap into that power, the beliefs, if done effectively, the beliefs and uh, whatever patterns that are with you currently, they kind of just melt away. So I certainly, it, you know, it's funny. I don't do that a lot in sessions. I, I don't mm -hmm. really facilitate visualizations, but I do have a lot of exercises that, point to the specificity of like imagine three years mm -hmm. out from now like you're you're celebrating the happiest moment in your career like who are you gathered with and what exactly are you celebrating who's nice. like are you where where are you like really painting uh, evoking all this different senses and uh you know one of the things that happens for me I I can say as a client one of the things that happened was my brain would still click into gear and uh, be like, that's, that's not realistic. Like, how are you gonna do all that? So it, it felt very fleeting. And there might even be a person out there who it's, they're so blocked off that they don't, they can't even imagine what it would be like to have that. So like, does that, does that ever show up with your clients where that it doesn't, it doesn't get them where you think it's gonna go? And then like, where would you go from there? Yeah. There's, um, I won't say often, but like, yeah, there are moments where a client isn't, I don't want to say receptive, but just there's like a line of questioning that doesn't feel like it's, it's serving them or they have a block in some way. And I've found that part of, I don't know, part of the practice of coaching is like totally disconnecting personally from being married to any one given path. Mm -hmm. uh, I know you're empathic as am I, and I find when I'm really, really listening deeply, I can usually tune in to a inquiry that's going to help them. So if something's not working, I either, they either say it or I'm sensing it um, and I change direction. And often it's to another question. It's not like to a thought occasionally it's a reflection of what I'm seeing or what I'm noticing particularly if it's a pattern but usually it's just another question I mean it sounds simple but I find so much of our job as coaching is to just help our clients see things differently and so if we were like zooming way out then maybe we try zooming way in or if we were like showing them things from the right then maybe we need to be showing things from the left if we were talking about strengths maybe we need to be talking about shadow and just sort of playing with what's going to help them with an illumination that pushes them forward yeah the part of that sounds like it's it's hearing the words behind the words too right it's like if you're deeply listening there's the, the content of what's being said but then there's the context is like the body language and the the tone of voice. And uh, I, I think if, if someone's a really adept coach, they're able to tune into that. Like, Hey, I noticed when you were talking about this, that you you started to speak a little faster or that you mm -hmm. lean forward. Like, was there something there? And, and maybe it's nothing. And a, another thing that you're pointing to, I think is the willingness. It's that willingness to fail again, right? It's that willingness to not be attached to the outcome of the question and, and being willing to strike out and taking, taking a guess, or at least like you're yeah, throwing something out there. And a lot of times what happens is 
if it's coming from a, a grounded place and you're not leading the client or whatever else might be getting in the way, they will point you in the right direction anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, right. like, it's say, like, it's no, not that's that, not that. It's this. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And totally. so I, ha- I mean, I have to remind, I have lots of conditioning around like my mind can really quickly go into like, oh, I, I know this already. I got the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I need to just, I'm going to make it really clear. <laughs> yeah. The answer, right. The fact that there even is an answer already, lots of conditioning there. Yeah. Anyway, I didn't want to make this about me. I, I'm more curious about now, like what types of clients are you, are you working with? Like who, who lights you up to work with these days? Yeah. Great question. I love my clients. I work with a variety of people. I've actually avoided niching down, so to speak, particularly because my business is fairly new and I want to explore a lot of different types of clients to see who really resonates with me and who I can help the most. But what I've found Um, one common thread with many of my clients is that they are senior leaders in companies or founders or business leaders of their own companies. They are collaborative and they're coming to coaching, not just for themselves, but to be the best leader that they can be. Like that's something that they really care about. They're also people who earlier in their career, they had a feedback loop from mentors and managers, but now that they've gotten to a certain level in their career, that feedback is gone or it's much more sparse. And so they feel a little untethered and want the help and support of a coach to be a thought partner and a challenger and someone to help hold them accountable and someone who they can dream and fail with because of where they are in their professional lives, they, they don't have that context often, if at all. Um, so I love working with people who fit that profile. And there's two subsets of that that have recently come into play more that I've been having fun and making impact serving. One is people who are in transition. Like me, the pandemic made a lot of people stop and think and reflect is the ladder that I'm on where where I want to be? And if not, can I leave? How can I leave? Is it too risky? What does it look like? How do my skills and strengths reapply? Um, I have an idea for my own thing. How do I do that? That feels really cool, but scary. So people who are contemplating or even in a state of transition is a subset of those senior leaders who I coach. And then there's another subset who I'm troubled to say is is more common than I want, which is people who have been in a toxic workplace experience Mm. and they've physically moved on, but that experience in a toxic workplace has stuck with them in some way, whether it's related to their own self-confidence, their trust and willingness to open up to others. And so I work with them to reclaim the reins and the narrative of their story so they can shed the baggage of that previous toxic workplace. Ooh, that sounds like really important work. Is there, like, where do you get, that sounds like such a vastly different uh, group than the other two. The other Mm -hmm. two are somewhat, they rhyme with each other in in some Mm -hmm. way. People who are leaving a toxic workplace, what is that? Do you structure your engagement with them in a similar manner? Or is it a, a whole new, it's like Marissa coach A is over here. Marissa coach B with a different set of skills and, and tools. 
and, and I know ultimately it's like a lot of it is just being a, a deep listener and being present with them. But like, is there, do you structure engagement in a similar mm-hmm. way with the toxic work people? I created a different, a supplementary program to help people shed the baggage from a toxic workplace. And I'll, I will share the caveat that for some people who are either in it or recently out of it, they who, who literally have PTSD from the experience, there's therapy and medical professionals that help Mm -hmm. of which I am not qualified to do, Mm -hmm. but for people who have moved on in many ways, but they find themselves having, you know, recurring memories about the situation that caused them to overanalyze their current situation or be less bold or think more negatively about themselves. Mm -hmm. It's that rewiring that I'm helping with. And The reason why I created something specific for them is because I kept hearing it from clients and prospects. And I listened to my instinct. I'm like, I can serve here. How can I do that in the best way? And I realized that it goes beyond my traditional coaching is is one-on-one sessions, primarily weekly or bi-weekly for people who are enrolling in my toxic workplace experience. It's often traditional coaching, weekly or bi-weekly coaching and an intensive, which is either almost a full day or two half days where we're really going deep on the experience, on the stories, and then on rewriting and reauthoring and rewiring to set up for a positive trajectory going forward. So it really is like a deep moment in time to pivot and change the trajectory. And I'm enthused by the, the early client results so far. Awesome. Well, it, it sounds like you're doing really amazing work, Marissa. And one of the things that's come up a few times now is failures. And I'm wondering if in your two plus years of coaching, if you have any that come to mind as, as favorites now that you look back on them. And I, I imagine one of them actually might be that you got laid off, right? Like mm-hmm. you can look back fondly on that. But are there other failures that have been really wonderful lessons learned and, and teachers for you? Like any, any favorites at all that come to mind? Yes. Um, sure. I mean, getting let go was, was top of the list because I didn't have, I don't know that I would have had the courage to leave otherwise. Mm-hmm. And when I coach people or when I meet people who make a decision to leave a career, that's not right for them to follow their passion on their own, I give them such a round of applause. I have so much admiration and respect for that amount of courage. I didn't have it. I was forced to, you know, the universe had to give me a real kick in the pants to get my, (laughs) get my budding gear. So you're right. That one's on the list. I also think, you know, not all of my favorite failures have to be these like big, that was a big major one. But now I think about in my business, like, probably every week I um, have a consult with somebody who doesn't end up a client. Either they say no, or they're not a fit. So I don't even offer more. And old me would have viewed having a consult with somebody that doesn't result in, I close the client as a failure. And if I had a couple of those, I probably would have quit by now. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, those just roll off you know, like water off a duck's back wasn't the right fit. They weren't for me. Or like, here's what I learned about myself of how I could have showed up better that maybe it would be a closure. But I find because I 
as an entrepreneur, have to put myself out there and have to expose myself to like small little, you know, whatever paper cuts, mm-hmm. I'm so much more resilient. So I have a lot of gratitude for those small no's because it helps. Um, the other one that comes to mind, I shared with my coach early on that I was coaching a lot of people who were job seeking, who were actively job seeking, who had either been let go or they were hating where they were. And I had this idea to offer group coaching programs since there was like a common theme and I had never done that before. And so, like I said, she was like, okay, pedal to the metal. What is this? How long is it? Like, let's put it together. What are you going to charge? How are you going to pitch it? And so I put it all together. I pitched it. I told myself I would do, I would do it if I got at least four people. I was aiming for six. I pitched it to about 20 people who I knew. Um, and two people said yes. So I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And that was a failure. But I learned so much. First of all, the two people who said yes, um, one of them became a one-on-one client who I've been working with for over a year, and it's been tremendous, and I love it. I learned about how to successfully pitch a group program. I was like much more salesy, much less giving the experience of coaching, which Mm. is what works for me in converting my one-on-one business. Um, I scheduled it in the summertime every week. Most of my prospects were working moms who had like very busy summer schedules with their kids. So that was like an immediate non-starter for people. I didn't give myself enough runway to enroll. Like I was just like, okay, cool. The next time I do this program, I've have all of, I have this like blueprint of what to do and what not to do that isn't going to set me up for inevitable success, but it's certainly going to help me avoid some of the landmines. So that was another good one that again, like I, I give myself credit for being new me instead of old me who that would have happened to. And I would have been like, oh my gosh, I, I need to go back into marketing because I suck and I failed. Yeah. I mean, there's something really powerful about curiosity and and bringing that into like everything that was happening to you there you it sounds it wasn't happening to you is happening for you would be one Mm -hmm. way to say it right and Mm -hmm. if you can just look at everything that's happening in your life as feedback that you can learn from it's like I mean that's really what a lot a lot of coaching is Mm -hmm. about it's helping turn someone into or helping someone awaken the learner in them and just (laughs) be curious about like what's happening inside of me when something happens, maybe I, it's not how I want it to happen. What can I learn from that? And like, let's move on, let's grow. And then instead of failures becoming these debilitating things that hold us back and, and keep us stuck, it's like, Oh, you know what? Ne- next time I'm going to be even better. And so it becomes this like really rewarding loop instead of one that keeps you held back. Mm-hmm. I like that a lot. This is it- this, I was sorry, I was, I was going to say this is actually like a really random sidebar, but it's a, a curiosity of mine. And in my experience, a, a lot of coaches are more introverted. Mm-hmm. And you, I believe, are extroverted. You're already laughing. Off the charts. Yeah. Like, is that, do you find that to be challenging? Like, in, in a lot of ways, uh, it makes perfect sense for me who I love people, but I'm also an introvert. So I could be by mm-hmm. myself for a long time doing kind of legwork or like editing a podcast or any of that stuff. Like, what is what's it like being very extroverted and being a coach in your own business? 
I don't know how to be any other way. So being my authentic self is being off the charts extroverted. I will say the two reflections that I have to that question are one from my experience in my coach certification and two in my like style and dynamic. So when I was getting a coach certification, before I really knew what true pure coaching was, I thought that it was um, advice and like mentoring and advising and coaching, which is what I had done as a leader in my coaching career. And so just a quick, like for people who are getting coach certified, the ICF principles and credentials of pure, pure coaching are truly inquiry-based. There's no advice given whatsoever much more listening than talking. And so in my training where I had to practice a lot of it, it was really hard at the beginning because I really learned that, wow, my default setting is to share and to talk and to think out loud and to like take up a lot of space in a room. And when you're really coaching at a deep level, not that extroverts can't do this, but for me, it felt different than my natural tendency in a pretty extreme way. So it was helpful for me to go through the training to build and strengthen a new muscle that really is being okay with the silence and listening super, super deeply and not feeling compelled to share my thoughts, my ideas, my answers, my advice. Um, So that's the first reflection on how my extroversion, I think, has come into play. Now, my extroversion serves me greatly for my type of client. I'm not for everyone. And I've totally come to grips with that. I like to make jokes in sessions, for example, like my clients are going to laugh. My personality is part of what a coach gets or what a client gets when they're signing up for me. And I totally realize that some people might not be game for that. And that's not going to be helpful and productive for them. And that's totally cool. And like there's coach out there for them. But for a coach who likes the type of extroverted energy that I bring that still includes and is primarily deep listening and inquiry and and extracting wisdom from them, um, then it it just works. Mm -hmm. I'd say also like part of growing the business and creating clients is, is putting myself out there. And relative to what I would guess, relative to introverted coaches, I have a much easier time putting myself out there, navigating my network, cultivating um, a flourishing professional network, some of which lead to clients, some of which lead to referrals. So I think in that way, it has served me. Yeah. Well, that that makes a whole lot of sense. I'm thinking of (laughs) what works for me and that that was certainly uh, a big barrier in the beginning that, I mean, it still is to a certain extent, the the putting myself out there. And uh, so in a lot of ways, you know, I framed the question around introverts having some sort of unique advantage as coaches. And the the answer is, of course, it's, it's nuanced, right? For every strength, there's some sort of shadow maybe. And one of the benefits of being extrovert is that that wasn't a problem for you. You you're able to immediately tap into your network, um, have conversations with people, say what you're up to. You're probably more willing to pitch ideas before they feel ready. You know, like one of the things for me in the beginning was I needed to be perfect before I put it out there. And from here, you t- you spoke a little bit about how the one of your, like maybe in one-on-one conversations when you're working with prospective clients that there was a tendency to be salesy, at least in the beginning. 
and that providing the experience of coaching is what really allowed you to start building the at, at least the one-on-one clients and, and probably serves you as in all areas of coaching. And we've spoken a little bit about the, just the spirit of generosity and abundance. And I would love to hear, yeah, how, how that shows up for you as a coach. Like, is that, was that something that you, did you have a different belief about that before coaching? Like I certainly have a frame of scarcity and Mm -hmm. uh, I'm still working around like, yeah, to give is actually a multiplier, but like, was that something that you came to as a coach or was it something that was always there? I've always been a generous person, particularly with my time, attention, love, things like that. Money, I've had a lot of scarcity around and it's, as with most people, it comes from your lineage and I've just had beliefs about money that it's meant to be like white knuckled and saved and you better be responsible. And so, um, so there's a little bit of like a mixed bag. And I also, from a sales perspective, which was probably tied to my money beliefs, felt like I'm not good at sales and sales is manipulative. And I had some negative beliefs about what sales were. I read a book called The Prosperous Coach, which I know you have also read and and subscribed to the philosophy, which to sum it up is, is to offer service as the sales process, like to coach, give the experience of coaching. And that's what enrolls or doesn't enroll a client. And that concept really freed me up to not think about coaching is what I'm good and I love at over here. And then sales is something that's hard and icky and I'm not so good at. And that's like this other thing that I just have to do. Instead, it's like, no, it's all coaching. And my calendar is filled with either coaching people who may become my client or coaching people who already are my clients. And I was just at a webinar last night with my coach talking about money and another coach inquired about, you know, should you charge for a consult? And then if they close, like that comes off of the price. And there's no wrong or right way to do any of this stuff. It's all pretty much made up. For me, what I really love and feel inspired by and feel very connected to personally and like values wise is being extremely generous during the enrollment process and when somebody becomes a client, but like offering a free session. Sometimes I do two sessions. Sometimes I will provide them with a book that I think would be interesting or an audio clip or a podcast, not with the end goal of like, I hope they become a client, but really my mindset is like, if I just pour into them, if I just listen deeply, if I make them feel seen and heard and helped in a way that they haven't experienced before or recently, and they have such a positive experience of me, then I did my job. And the right people are gonna become my clients, maybe now, maybe in the future, And if they're not the right fit, they had a positive experience of me. So maybe they'll tell somebody else, but like, I just feel so energetically good when I'm just giving and generous and it's, it's worked. So I find to be really helpful and the same goes for money. Like the more I think in a constrained way about it and feel uptight and intense, that doesn't resonate. And when I feel 
like I can give and treat myself and treat others and donate, the more flows in. So it's the generous leads to abundant philosophy has, I would say, deepened since I've been on this entrepreneur journey. Mm -hmm. Are there any books you've mentioned the prosperous coach and you'll have to remind me, you said the happiness, happiness advantage advantage. Yeah. Are there any books about money that you have found really helpful? And, Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll invite in also maybe any other books that you would point my listeners to. Yes. I am a voracious, avid reader, particularly of like self-help, personal development books, as I think many coaches are. Mm-hmm. Related to money, I was really changed by the soul of money. I forget mm-hmm. the author's name. She describes thinking about money. She invites us to think about money as a tool that's meant to flow through us and through the ecosystem to serve goals and objectives. And even that concept alone just helped me. Like the point of money isn't to have it. It's like, what are, why do you have it? And what are you going to do with it to serve and fuel yourself and to serve and fuel your community and your world? Um, So really recommend that book. It helped me shift my scarce mindset as it relates to money. Um, I have a few books up there that I find to be the most recommended. I recommend them the most to people. They've shifted my beliefs and thinking the most. One is Designing Your Life by Dave Evans and Bill Burnett. That's the book that first got me thinking about coaching. They, it's part book, part workbook. And I encourage listeners, if you read it, to take the time to do the workbook parts of it too, and don't skim over those, which is probably what I would have done if I read it when I was working full time, but I read it when I was out of work and I did the worksheets and it helped me get out of my own box of what is possible to dream more differently and creatively and illuminate potential new paths. So that one was great. Um, there's a skinny one at the top of that pile that's called The Go-Giver. So speaking of having a generous spirit, it's a book that's like a fable almost. It's a quick read, but I found the concepts to be really relevant, not just about money, but how giving really does open up the opportunity to receive. So that one was quite powerful as well. Um, Yeah, those are some of my favorites. What are some of your favorites? Ooh, there's there's so many, but one that I always point people to because this one made such a big shift for me. It, it wouldn't land as much for you, but the book Quiet by Susan Cain mm. is uh, it's and the subtitle is the power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking. So I don't I don't know if you've heard of the book before, but it I felt seen in a way that I had never been seen before. And I looked at these qualities in myself that I for so long had admonished or looked at as less than or not good enough as really powerful strengths that I could actually lean on instead of hide from or try and suppress and and push down. So that's always, that's one that I always recommend for coaches. I, I, it's already been brought up, but the prosperous coach is a a really great one. The coaching habit is also, do you know Michael Bungay Steiner? Yes, I know the coaching habit. Yeah. And that's another great book. And that one, that book really helped me distill down. Like I, 
I've tried so hard so many times and I still do to ask these home run, like fancy questions. And sometimes by the end of a question, and this even happens in podcasts, it's like, what what did you just even say? It's like, you can just have a, a toolbox of five questions. And as long as I'm being curious and listening, like that's, so that's really what I took from that book. It, it's really powerful. Yeah, and then I recommend that one just as a quick note to um, potentially for your listeners, I recommend that one for leaders who want to be a better coach to their teams mm-hmm. and people, because I find sure for coaching professionals, but even if you want like to build that habit as a leader in your life and in your work, mm-hmm. that book is very accessible and practical. I find totally. Totally. And so another good book to that person would be the 15 commitments of conscious leadership, Mm -hmm. which is um, I'm reading that through for a third time right now. I just, I love that book. I think it's a full integrated approach into how to be the the best version of yourself possible. It's not just a business book. And then another one that I would throw in is dare to lead by Brene Brown. Mm. So those are, like those are books that evoke a lot in me that I've read in the last year that they still, those are present for me as you asked that question. Nice. Thank you. Yeah. So I think we're, we're towards like the back end here. I, I've covered almost everything that I think I wanted <laughs> to cover with you, but uh, just, just a few more questions. What are maybe some daily practices or maybe like a morning routine, like with things that you do every day, we, we've been speaking more in terms of not, not necessarily just ideas, but I would love to get like down to maybe some smaller practical things that you do to nourish yourself every day or to develop in some way. Yes. Happy to. I have a morning routine. I am not perfect at sticking to it, which I like to share. But when I do, I feel great. And that's motivation to keep going. There are a few things that are a part of it. I go to sleep and wake up around the same time every day. So I don't wake up to an alarm, which is wonderful. I just love getting to open my eyes and start my day. When I was working a corporate job and was super stressed and didn't have good sleep habits, I felt like I had to have an alarm and waking up to, you know, music or an alarm or like that startling sensation uh, just was not pleasant. So I wake up usually between seven and seven 30 and I immediately, um, you know, after I like wash up or whatever, I will journal usually for about 10 minutes, sometimes more if something's on my mind, sometimes a little less, but I'll journal. If I don't have anything that's coming to mind, I will go to some prompts that I've like collected over books that I read or podcasts that I listen to that I find interesting. Um, And then I meditate. So the writing was actually a new addition to the morning routine that used to just start with meditation. But I would find that if I woke up and had a lot on my mind, the meditation wasn't as effective because my mind was elsewhere. So the journal is like a brain dump Mm -hmm. so that then I can do a meditation and then some form of movement or exercise. Usually I have the Peloton app, but not the bike. So I'm usually doing like a yoga or dance or something from there. Um, to get my body moving. And then I look at my phone. So on my best and most disciplined days, I do all of those things before 
looking at my phone. Mm-hmm. Charging my phone in a room that wasn't my bedroom was the biggest game changer to break my habit of scrolling email and social media before even getting vertical for the first time in the morning. Uh Yes. So that's the, oh, and yeah, so that's the morning routine. And then there's something that I do every evening, which is called daily design. And I learned it from my coach at the Handel group. I look at my day the next day and I design how I want the day to go. And I author it as if it's already happened. And it's not a to-do list. It's like how I want to feel, how I'm going to show up. So my daily design for today that I wrote last night might say, I had a blast on Michael's podcast. I'm proud of my food and fitness choices. I feel gratitude for moments big and small. And I boldly coached the three clients that I had. Um, and I just write that down the night before I used to do it in the morning, but I like doing it the night before for me, it works. And then in the evening, I'm not just writing it for the next day, but I'm also reflecting back on what I had written and giving myself a little check mark. If I did it or writing a little note to myself, if I didn't feel proud or what I felt grateful for. And I just sort of, um, close out the previous day. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, mm-hmm. we've spoken about different ways that you've invested large amounts of money. I'd be curious to hear what have been besides, or maybe working with a coach is the answer, but what are, what are some of your favorite investments that you've made in, in your life and, and perhaps in the last couple of years on your coaching journey? Yeah, definitely a coach hands down was and is the best and biggest investment. It's my biggest expense. I spend more on my coach than I do on my New York city rent or anything else. And it's worthwhile because not only is she helping me step up in my life and in my business, but because the investment is where it's at, I'm showing up in such a dedicated and big way. Um, So that's meaningful. I also invest in a membership in a women's executive network called Chief. The women in that community are amazing, inspiring, powerful, creative, dynamic, and getting to be in community with those people is a really important investment for me, especially as a solopreneur who is extroverted, who gets my energy from other people. I love being on teams. I liked working for companies, frankly, for a lot of reasons. And so that satiates some of the professional desire that I have to feel amongst other high-performing, ambitious, go-getting people. So that's a great investment. And then on a smaller but um, consistent scale, I am a book junkie. Um, I buy a lot of books. I listen to some audiobooks and I do some digital books, but I love a physical hard copy of a book. It's a small joy in life. And I um, never regret buying them, even though my apartment is exploding with books. <laughs> yes. I, well, I share your love for books, obviously. And that's, that's certainly, I, there's even books that I've bought that I don't know how much I read of them. And it, I, I never look back and go, oh my God, I can't, you know, I can't believe I bought <laughs> that book. Well, I'm such an idiot for buying that book. So I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. 
Oh, one, uh, can I share one yeah, more thing yeah. that comes to mind that I'm working on with my coach actually is like investing in myself and treating myself and giving gifts to myself. It's something that's so uncomfortable having a financially scarce mindset and feeling like I have to save. And especially as I've gotten the business going at the beginning, I was feeling less certain. And so she's in a great way encouraged me now that the business is doing financially well to like give some of that back to myself. So one of the things that I invested in at the beginning of the year is a personal trainer, Mm. which I have had before and always looked at it as like a luxury and why not similar to books, right? That's never an investment that I'm going to be like, Oh, I can't believe I spent a few hundred dollars, like having somebody help me feel like my physical best self, you know? Um, And even things as simple as, you know, treating myself to dinner when I have a busy day, instead of begrudgingly having to go into the kitchen and cook something up, like I can order in. Or if I, you know, I had a client cancel and I typically would stay or postpone and I would typically stay at my computer and work and send emails and do outreach. And I went and got a pedicure in the middle of the day. Salon was empty what a luxury. Mm -hmm. So while it's not a consistent practice yet, it's been something that I'm working on and I've seen a lot of positive benefit from investing in myself guiltlessly. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's, it's such an important skill, right? We're most of us are, especially maybe the achievement oriented folks are, we're not really Mm -hmm. good at receiving whatever it is, right? Praise, it could be money, it could be anything. So I have been making it a practice for myself. If, if someone says a compliment, I, I try to pause and say, thank you. I receive that compliment and not brush it off as like, oh, you know, it was, it was nothing or it was my pleasure yes. or whatever. It's like actually receiving it. So yes. it, in a way, investing in yourself like that is you receiving the, the gift of giving to yourself. Same gift that you're giving to your clients, right? Yes, totally. And I love that challenge and it's a good reminder to like accept a compliment challenge yourself i'm gonna take that on too it's a good reminder yes so i have i have one more of the kind of rapid fire variety and then i i always end my interview with the same question so the the last rapid fire is what's an ordinary moment from your daily life that brings you great joy spending time with my nephew Mm. hands down. My nephew, I live a 10 minute walk from my sister and brother-in-law and the baby. I see him a few times a week, but without fail, I see him on Tuesdays. If you ask him or me, we'll tell you it's Tia Tuesdays. (laughs) He's going to be two in a couple of weeks. And on Tuesdays, I go over and relieve the nanny and hang with him, just he and I. And seeing the world through a little child's eyes is... I, you can't, you can't give me any more joy. I'm like tearing up just thinking about mm. it. It is best. That's so beautiful. Love that. All right, Marissa. Well, before I ask the final question, where would you point my listeners to connect with you? Your listeners. I would love if your listeners connect with me on LinkedIn. That is where I post the most content and love following and engaging with people who are up to big things or need help or have creative and bold ideas. So I'm just Marissa Fernandez on LinkedIn. And I also have a website if people want to learn more about me, 
about other podcasts and things that I've been on or about my coaching services. And that website is marissalfernandez.com. Unfortunately, somebody beat me to the punch on marissafernandez.com. <laughs> so don't forget the L, marissalfernandez.com. Awesome. And as you, as you brought up LinkedIn, I was reminded of another book because you posted this the other day. The Big Leap is another book that I read recently that is outstanding. So anyone yes. who's look who it seems like your exact target market it's like someone who's excellent at what they do and is being rewarded handsomely for it but is feeling like there's something more out there and what they call the zone of genius then that's a great book as well so just i wanted to mention that and the final question i asked marissa the podcast is called mike's search for meaning and i love hearing from all my guests in your words what does it mean to live a meaningful life to live a meaningful life to me is to bring joy and positivity to others, to be in service, helping people to live and achieve what they're capable of and to feel inspired myself to seek that inspiration and to offer it to others. Mm. Here, here. Well, I experience you as someone who is fully living out her gifts and living out your version of a meaningful life. And it was such a pleasure to have you on, Marissa. I'm really glad that we had this conversation. I'm really glad that you braved it out through <laughs> not feeling 100%, but you you delivered a 100% value. And uh, yeah, I, I so appreciated you taking the time to come on. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And I'll give Ben a shout out for introducing <laughs> us. It's such a pleasure to be in community with you. Yes, yes. Love Benny. And uh, to all the rest of the listeners, in addition to Ben, <laughs> I hope that you have a good rest of your day or night and take good care. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.